0: It wasn't an accident that I put the same quote on the front of the bulletin this week that we had last week. If you look at the front of your bulletin there, I want to read this. Great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, who we've talked about before, uh, said this, that the true preaching of the gospel of salvation by grace alone always leads to the possibility of this charge being brought against it. There is no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this, that some people might misunderstand it and misinterpret it to mean that it really amounts to this, that because you are saved by grace alone, it does not matter at all what you do. You can go on sinning as much as you like because it will redound all the more to the glory of God's grace. This is a way of saying what Paul said in Romans 5, verse 20, that the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now the Apostle Paul, in writing this portion of this letter to the Romans, was addressing this concern That if grace really goes that far, it might lead to what we might call lawlessness. That people would feel free to go ahead and do whatever they wanted to because grace would trump that. And even grace would be that much greater. God's glory would be that much greater because he had one more thing to forgive people for. In theological terms, it's called antinomianism, that the law no no longer matters that it's not anymore about the law, but about grace. Paul says, if you think that, then you have not understood God's love. If you think that, then you still have not gotten this. I know that some people are accusing me of saying this. I know that you may be tempted of saying this. I would imagine that many in this room are are feeling like, I know you've been saying this over and over week after week, Pastor, but tell me again how this isn't just license to sin more. And so Paul responds to these questions. Some people say that these chapters, chapters 6 to 8, if you're joining us here for the first time this week in a while, we've been going through Romans 6 through 8. They These chapters deal with primarily the the the... the, the The theological concept called sanctification, the process by which God changes us more and more, makes us more and more holy. But we looked at last week that that's not what these are primarily about. These verses rather are primarily about what it means now that God has said, your relationship with me has been reconciled by what Jesus has done. We were at odds, but now God has reconciled us. Now Paul uses this topic for a very particular reason. You remember what this reason is? We talked about this before. This reason is because the Christians in Rome were having a hard time getting, together with, getting along with one another. Their relationship, particularly their relationship with one another, those who had been Jewish and now were followers of Christ, and those who had been not Jewish or Gentile and now are following, believing in Christ. They were at odds. They were struggling to get along. And so Paul reminds the people, Look, you're struggling to get along because you haven't understood how you now can get along with God how your relationship with God has been reconciled and affects all of your relationships with one another. Now you have peace. And this peace comes by this startling grace, this startling grace that says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. A grace grace and a love that opens itself up to abuse. Have you ever thought about this? If you truly love another person, you will always open yourself up to the risk of abuse. To give yourself over to another person is to do just that. To risk that they will steal from you. To risk that they will take advantage of you. To risk they will not love you in return, to risk that they will take your love and give that love to somebody else, this is the type of love that God has shown to us. It's a love that risks because love that risks is the only love that truly is love. It's the love that gives to that vineyard that we read about earlier, all of his people and risks them taking and drinking the wine themselves and getting drunk on it and giving it to others. Last week, we looked at a slave master who was abusive to his slaves. And then, when the slave was released from that master, he knew nothing else except to return to the slave master that abused him. Paul said, Are we to sin because we are no longer under that master that is the law? Sometimes it speaks of sin and the law almost interchangeably we'll address that today are we to sin because we are no longer under that master that is sin and the law but under grace he says don't go back to that don't go back to that abusive master because you have been freed from that don't sin anymore don't you know every time you sin you go back to that master continuing on that theme and explaining why we should no longer sin even though we've been freed from that law freed from sin do not go back to it he now says this week continuing to answer the same question are we to sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace he says look if you go back to it it's like going back to an abusive husband we can't relate to the Slavery as much, although last week we looked at it, and I think I think we are able to make some connections there, but we can, most of us, relate to somebody, somebody we've known who has been abusive in a marriage. He says, You have been freed from that, do not return to it. Now As I read the text, you may be a little surprised that I'm interpreting it this way. I'll explain what I mean as we go along. Let's read chapter 7, Romans chapter 7. If I didn't say so earlier, open to Romans chapter 7. And we'll read verse 1 to 6. Let me remind you again that we're still answering the question. This is the second part of the answer to the question Paul asks in Romans 6.15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? He says now, or do you not know now, excuse me, or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law. Right? Jews and Gentiles, by this point, they know the law. They know this truth. That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, She will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead. In order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh. Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members. To bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code but in the new life of the spirit now let me just make a quick note because i know a number of you are using the esv translation as i do and you probably noticed that the last verse is slightly different order in your version than what i do that's simply because Uh, The ESV occasionally will update their translation, and so they've just switched the order there. You'll find that in various translations, in case you were wondering. Are we to go on sinning because the law is no longer our master, but now we serve grace? I want to look at four questions to frame this answer today the first question is what is this law that Paul is speaking about what is this law why does Paul use it interchangeably the second question is kind of addressing this we'll just scratch on the surface of this question does that mean God's law is abusive you just compared sin as an abusive sin in the law as an abusive husband is God's law abusive that's actually the question that Paul answers next, so we'll just venture into it, and then you'll see in verse 7, what shall we say then, that the law is sin or is abusive? By no means, he says. Third question is, is, how is it that death releases us from this law? I mean, this is sort of a foreign concept for us. We can kind of relate, but we'll look at it in a little bit more detail. And then the fourth question is what what is this new life that Paul speaks about that is in the Spirit? So what is is this law? Verse 6 we just read. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive so that we serve not under the old written code but in the new life in the Spirit. How many of you have heard It said that the Old Testament is a testament of the law and the New Testament is a testament of grace. Anybody hear that? The Old Testament is a testament of the law. The New Testament is the testament of grace. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 2 verse 29. Same letter. Paul said, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And right before that, he said even more clearly, but no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outwardly. And physical. Now Paul has been introducing this whole thing. He took the first three chapters, chapters one through three, to say, here's what the law says. Here's where you stand in relationship to the law. And right in the middle of that whole section, he said, but a Jew is not a Jew outwardly by following the law, but inwardly in their spirit. If you've heard that the Old Testament is a testament of law and the New Testament is a testament of grace, you have heard somebody teaching false doctrine. They have been telling you lies. Most people tell it quite unwittingly, and yet it is still a lie. Because when you come to this book of Romans and you look at what Paul is speaking of, When he's talking about the law, he uses examples from the law of Moses that the people of Israel lived under. But he always goes back to a different person when he speaks of those who were living under the law. You know who he speaks of? He always goes back to Adam. Always. Paul didn't spend any time talking about Moses. He really doesn't spend that much time talking about the people of Israel. He says, look, in chapter 5, you all died in Adam. Adam had an arrangement with God. Keep this one rule I gave you. Don't eat from this one tree and you shall live. You will live forever. You will live forever with me, unbroken in our relationship." But once Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, the relationship changed. Sin came into the world, and at the same time sin came into the world, grace entered world. The- And God said, Adam and Eve, I'm going to send you out of the garden because if you stayed in the garden, you would live with me forever in the brokenness now of our relationship. And I don't want to live in a relationship that is broken with you. If you want to, you can use the illustration of marriage. I don't want to be in a marriage with you that is broken by somebody being unfaithful in the relationship. This isn't the type of relationship I designed for us to be in. It's not the way I intended it to be. But I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to send you out of the garden as a matter of a gracious, as a gracious thing so that one day I can enter back into that relationship with you without the sin hindering our relationship. You know, there are two ways to be in a healthy relationship. Think about your marriage, think about your relationship with a friend, or your relationship with your parent, a parent, or a child. Two ways to be in a relationship. Healthy relationship. Now there's there's the unhealthy relationship, constantly broken, strife, unhealthiness. Lack of communication, right? We all know what those are. Two ways to be in a healthy relationship. Either, either you never wrong one another, you always are good, kind to one another. Or, or when somebody does wrong to you, you forgive them for that wrong. You absorb that wrong yourself. You don't hold it over them anymore. When you hold it over them, it's broken you hold it over them and it's not really forgiveness when you truly forgive you absorb the cost you absorb the pain or the other person having wronged you makes it up to you some things can be made up some things can't two ways to be in relationship with another God said look I was going for the first way I'm not going to do you any wrong you don't do me any wrong you did me wrong. I'm going to go for the second way. When you do wrong, I'm going to forgive you for it. I'm going to give you a way back in. And God said that to Adam right from the beginning. He said, I'm going to send you a way out of the garden because here there is perfect relationship. I've got this. I want to restore it. I want to bring it back. But now, in a very symbolic way, I'm going to show you that, for the meantime, there's another way of relationship, and that is, I'm going to forgive you. You can reject my forgiveness, and that keeps the relationship broken, but I am going to forgive you. And so all the Bible can be divided into two sections, Genesis 1 and 2, where there was this law, the relationship where everybody kept the rules, were kind to one another, and then there's the other part of the Bible, and that is grace, and that begins at Genesis 3 and goes on through Revelation 22. Adam. That law that God gave to Adam, he expounds on it, he keeps building on it, he keeps explaining it more and more, and every time he explains it more and more, the people say, oh, I wasn't supposed to want what my neighbor had. Not just, I'm not supposed to steal it, but I'm not even supposed to want it because that's coveting. I see I'm guilty of that too. See, he keeps building on it throughout the Old Testament and more and more the people realize, I am not righteous. I've broken God's law. He even builds on it into the New Testament when Jesus says, you think you've kept it all, but when you were angry with your brother... You murdered him. You think you kept it all, but when you looked lustfully at another woman who wasn't your wife, you committed adultery. God keeps unfolding the law so that we would understand the depth of our sin, the way that we keep running from God. We keep breaking the relationship. We keep being the unfaithful spouse in the relationship. And God keeps reminding us of his forgiveness for the ways we broke that. We can't go back to the relationship that Adam had. We can't go back to that and reset things. We can't do it the first way of relationship, healthy relationship. And so we're here in the second way. Paul says, look, if you keep trying to go back to that first way by keeping the law, by measuring up, by thinking, man, if I just get it all together, then I can code a worship service because then I'm right with God. You keep going back to that abusive husband. Does that make the law abusive? Second question, does that make God's law abusive? Paul says, no, not in any way. It was a good setup. It was a good arrangement when no one wronged each other. But the law now reminds us of all the places we fall short. And so if you're trying to earn God's favor, if you think that by your actions you're keeping your end of the marriage covenant. You're returning to an abusive relationship, an abusive master that keeps reminding you of all the places you failed. But God is a loving spouse who says, I I, I know you. I know you didn't measure up this time. I still love you. I'm going to continue to love you. I'm going to continue to love you because I showed you this kind of grace. Now the question still stands, why even... How should I phrase this? Why even... You know why to have the law need some kind of transition to get me over here to this question i'm just not quite thinking of how it is how does death release someone from this marriage maybe said another way why is forgiveness why does forgiveness for god require sacrifice on jesus's part why did jesus have to die on the cross Why all the death in the Old Testament sacrificial system, all the animals? Why the death even of the animals that God clothed Adam and Eve in when they were trying to cover themselves with leaves? Why all this death? And I think here is really the heart of this illustration that, that Paul uses. It's because death Releases a person from the law stipulations. Now, he gives one example, and that is of the marriage relationship. This is a convicting illustration because all of us, no matter how faithful we are in our relationships, have either lusted after or coveted someone else's marriage, someone else's. Wife, husband, something else we want. And so it it cuts to the heart. Somebody said one time, if you want to make people squirm in their seats and convict them, talk about money, uh, lust, and he had a third thing, but really it's just money and lust, right? You talk about those two things and people are convicted. This convicts us. But I think in our society where we are kind of, surrounded by images surrounded by things uh, that 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 lead to lust we tend to stop here at just the physical adultery in that concept when jesus when he talks and takes us further in the sermon on the mount takes us further and the rest of the bible as a whole when it talks about the sin of adultery more often than not it's not even focusing on the actual sin. It's talking about the way we commit adultery against God when we worship something other than God. When we turn our covenant faithfulness, our marriage with Christ, our marriage to God, and we turn and we act as if we're married to some other idol. Now, it's not just things that give us pleasure. It's things that give us control for some of us things that um, give us a sense of security, things that uh, we find safety and protection in, just like the Israelites did in that time where they were looking to other nations for their protection instead of looking to God. These are the places where we commit adultery against God. And so I think oftentimes we've got to get past that when we're reading the scriptures. Surely... This is a warning against the actual sin, but we need to also get past that so that we can understand the true and the first adultery. When David sinned and committed adultery with Bathsheba, he turns to God. He says, "God, against you and you only have I sinned because I have looked for comfort in something else other than you." That's the first thing. How does death How does death release a person from the covenant of marriage. How does death release a person from the covenant of marriage? How does death release a person from the penalty of committing adultery? How does death release somebody from the penalty of committing adultery? Do you notice a little shift that happened? In verse 4. After he said, if a woman commits adultery against her husband before he dies, she is guilty of breaking the law. But then he turns it in verse 4. He says, therefore, my brothers, you who have committed adultery died. You see that shift? It's not the person who was sinned against who died. It was the person who sinned. Who die? Interesting little shift there. And here's why: because both have died. Jesus, the bridegroom, presented in Scripture, has died for our sins. We, Paul is saying, we who are in Christ, who have believed in Christ, who have followed Him, who have known His grace, have died with. In that joint death, we have been freed from the penalty of committing spiritual adultery against God. Death has freed us from that penalty. There's another place where death frees a person in the Old Testament. Actually, there are a few. One is in the matter of inheritance. Inheritance remember this story, it comes out in the, prodigal of, the parable of the two sons, the two prodigal sons, the one who runs away, what does he do? He comes and asks his father for his inheritance, at least a third, perhaps a half of all of his father's possessions, and he takes it and he runs away, and that is a sin because he has taken the inheritance before his father dies and says, I hate you, I wish you were dead, but if his father dies then to demand, to request that third an inheritance is right. When a person dies, then it changes the name of the game. In another sense, a more obscure law you find in the Old Testament that when a person committed involuntary manslaughter, in other words, they killed a person by accident. He was swinging his axe, and the head flew off. And it hit somebody down the road, down the lane, and he died. It's obscure law, you know what he had to do? That person, in the time that we're not police, the relatives of the person who died could take revenge on this person, according to this law, and kill this other person. The person deserved to die. Death leads to death. But in this obscure form of grace, that person could flee to a city that was called a city of refuge. And as long as they were inside of this city, inside of the walls, the people who could take out the penalty for taking another life could not touch them. They could not pursue them. I know it sounds weird, but there's some kind of obscure justice in this that if a person dies, that the penalty is death for that person. Now, first, I want to say this. If you read through the Old Testament and you read all the places that the death penalty could be enacted, and all the places where people committed the sins where the death penalty could be enacted, only in a relatively few, maybe a couple of situations, was the death penalty actually Enacted. More often than not, there was some circumstance, some form of grace that happened. Okay, so just because the death penalty is there in an option does not mean it was always acted upon. A lot of people who are asking questions about Christianity, is it really just have this against Christianity? And the, you have to look not only at the possible penalty, but the actual penalty that oftentimes took under into consideration the the broader circumstances at large. No one, no one was ever put to death, recorded in the Old Testament, for committing involuntary manslaughter. Still, this law existed. I heard it explained to me one time that this law actually was a helpful law. You want to hear how it makes sense? The person who was swinging the axe, that the head was loose was not taking very good care to be safe he wasn't following the osha principles if you want to use modern day vernacular in fact god's law specifically said make sure check the head of your axe so that you don't kill somebody when you build a house and you build a roof that served as a deck a platform that people would live on Put a fence around it, he says, very specifically, because if the person falls off, it's your fault if you didn't put the fence around it. The person who wasn't taking proper care to avoid these things now has to wake up. Has to wake up and flee to the city. He's keenly aware now of his surroundings. He's keenly aware that his life is now at risk How many of us are walking through life half days not paying attention to the dangers around us? Not paying attention to the risk we put others in. When we're driving our cars, when we're swinging the axe, when we're setting up campfires, when whatever you're doing, right? How many risks do we have? This is something we sometimes harp on, try to teach our children. Think about not only your intentional actions against against another person, but what you possibly could do, how you maybe could hurt them. These people were in this city now having to think, having to wake up. But do you know that there was one way that they could be freed from their ostracization in that city? The one way that they could be freed from that was when the high priest, the one high priest who served over all the other priests in the land of Israel, when he died, it says this in Scripture, when he died, the people could come out of the city of refuge and no more vengeance could be taken on them. Death freed somebody from the penalty of the law. Death Changed the nature of the law. When a new king would come into power in lands outside of Israel, the first thing that they would typically do was read the law because their law was oftentimes different than their predecessor's law. Now in Israel, it was different. The first thing the king did when he came to power was to read God's law because it never changes. He still wants us to be careful that we aren't committing involuntary manslaughter. He still wants us to pursue this kind of righteousness, to grow into maturity, to grow in this grace, to realize that our obedience to the law is not to earn God's favor. It's not to be in that first type of relationship. It's to be in that second type of relationship, realizing that He has forgiven us and that the law is now good for us. We have been freed from the city of refuge so that we can now love other people and not be fearful of the judgment of sin. Don't go back to that abusive spouse that keeps reminding us, that keeps knocking on our door saying, vengeance is mine, you need to pay the penalty. Because Jesus has paid that penalty for us. Not just so that we can stay in the gracious relationship, but so that we can be restored one day to the garden relationship of Genesis 1 and 2. Until that time, grace reigns. But when that comes, there will be no more sin. We will love God perfectly and we will love one another perfectly. But even now we have been released from that penalty of death so that we can live righteously under God's grace. This, this is the new life that is in the Spirit. Not under the written code which began with Adam and was unfolded more and more even in the New Testament with Jesus. But having received the Spirit of God in you, having received the Spirit of God in you, it frees you to pursue righteousness. Because when you fail, there is no condemnation. We're getting there. Romans 8.1, answering another question. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in, united with, married to, the bridegroom Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law is good. It defines the perfect relationship. But if you have sinned, then the law... Is an evil spouse against you. In the most beautiful thing that God has ever done, He took the position of the abused spouse on our behalf. He took the position of the abused spouse on our behalf. He was perfect. He wasn't sinning against us. And then the humanity that he created to be good that had sinned against him. some who were perhaps even trying to follow the written code in the city there. Physically beat Jesus. And nailed him to the cross. And killed him. And he, though he had the power to escape that relationship, chose to endure the pain on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to him. How could anybody say that this justifies an abusive relationship? How can anyone say if you're in an abusive relationship to stay in it because Jesus endured the abuse Rather, it moves us to realize when we sin, we abuse our husband, Jesus. How can anyone continue to abuse the one who has endured that kind of abuse for you and loved you and forgiven you for it? Jesus wants to change us into people who don't abuse God or one another. And he did it By taking the abuse himself. Now listen, if you are in an abusive relationship, come and talk to me. I'm not aware of any here, but if you are, come and talk to me. You need to get out of that. You need to experience some form of grace. You need to understand that there is escape from it. You are probably returning to it like the slave who has been freed returns to the abusive master because you are continuing to be told lies over and over, just like Satan tells us lies. We start to believe them after a while. We say there's no out. There's no escaping it. But Jesus has offered us the escape. He's offered the escape that frees us from abusive relationships with other people and ultimately, more powerfully frees us from the abusive relationship that we had with Satan where he continued to lie to us and tell us he had good for us when really he continued to beat us. If you are abusing somebody in your relationship, know that there is hope for forgiveness for you because because Jesus forgives, has forgiven abusers. Don't stay in that place. Escape from it because he has offered you the escape from it. We could go on, that's a good place to stop. Let me pray, beloved Jesus who has pursued us to the end of the earth, who has pursued us in our own sin and come and rescued us out of it. When we swung back at you when you were trying to save us, you still pulled us out. Change us, Lord, that we would be faithful on our end of the covenant relationship. Remind us, O oh Lord, Lord, that you have forgiven us for when we have failed in that covenant faithfulness, past, present, and future. And help us to return to your loving embrace that you gave to that prodigal who stole from you when we stole from you and then return to you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.